Interest rates rising, geopolitical uncertainty. Nobody really has a clear idea, do they, about where the global economy is going to be in a couple of years' time and Australia's place in it. So how do you manage a business through all of this uncertainty? And as an investor, how do you pick the companies who are best placed to make a go of it all? This week, someone who can help us with all of that. And Sherry joins me. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. So this week, less of a podcast about investing in businesses, more focus on running in businesses. But perhaps it'll also give suggestions on what to look for in businesses from the outside. How are they managing themselves and what that means for their prospects? Now, my guest is a name you might be familiar with, Anne Sherry. She is a director of NAB, but that is not why we've got her here today. It's more to do with her varied career across government, banking and the tourism industry. Anne is chairperson for UNICEF Australia, also the Anira Group, which is a marketing services firm, and the Port of Townsville as well. And she is Chancellor of the Queensland University of Technology as well, and she joins us today. So the usual caveat, the views are Anne's. Not necessarily those of NABs. That's why on the weekend edition we try and broaden the opinions that we get from outside the bank, even though Anne is a bit inside the bank as well. Uh, So, Anne, uh, it seems like um, you've reinvented yourself a few times looking at your career, a fairly varied career. So is that the key to success? I mean, for people but also for businesses having periodic reinvention? Morning, Phil. Well, look, I think think it is a good thing to keep reinventing yourself and – I think it's going to be more important as we move forward because everything around us is changing. Why would we expect either our careers or our businesses or our view of sectors to stay the same when customer preferences are changing, the markets are changing, uh, and, you know, the world is changing, I guess. So I sort of felt like I was early to the party of reinvention, but it's going to be more common. Right. Well, we have to in a way, don't we? Because it's almost as though right now a whole load of cards have been thrown in the air and we're all trying to pick them back up again into what seems to be like a a logical fashion in in the right order. But actually uh, picking the direction that you head in, I mean, it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? It is, but there are always markers. And, you know, I've worked in quite a lot of consumer businesses and, Consumers are often a very good indicator of where things are going. Consumer preferences change, the way they pay changes. Uh, COVID changed people's behaviour, very dramatically accelerated things that we thought might take decades. If you think of banking, we thought it might have taken decades for people to give up cash and just tap and pay everywhere. And during COVID, because of COVID, Suddenly nobody would touch cash and the whole world tapped and paid and they continue. And, you know, I see in my local coffee shop um, lots of older customers who everyone would have said may never have transitioned, all of them are using their phones. So I think uh, customers never underestimate the the power of following customers and their preferences. So that is an example of something that we sort of knew that was going to happen. We just were taken aback a bit by the speed of it, which means that you've got to have your processes in place, haven't you, so that you don't fall short. I mean, that is a key part for businesses, making sure they're ready for the next step. You do, and you've got to be watching it as well because there, uh, you know, there have been other occasions. I mean, there's plenty of notable businesses around the world who, one minute we're top of the pops and next minute they're in a sector that had just disappeared. Uh, they were completely disintermediated uh, and those who didn't change just disappeared. So I do think there's um, there's something about 
not just being ready to change, but also reading the tea leaves fast enough so you're not left behind when, when you know, much changes around you. And, uh, and that, that's quite an art. There's more art in that than science. And I think, uh, you know, from an investor point of view, if I think about your audience, the, uh, if you're sitting just analysing the numbers, how do you see that? How do you ask the right questions? How do you test whether organisations are listening to their customers, whether they're B to B, B to C? Um, it's, uh, you know, there's something about trying to test readiness and um, ad- agility around listening to customers as well. Right. So a chunk of that gets down to the management team, doesn't it? You know, the expertise that you've got within the business so that they can manoeuvre and uh, have that agility that you're talking about and obviously be, be prepared to take the necessary risks as well. Yeah, it does. And and also, uh, is there enough capability in a management team for them to challenge each other? Because uh, the companies, you know, and I often use Amazon as an example after I visited them, they can articulate really clearly how built into their management culture is a culture of challenging each other. So they never get lazy. They never get complacent. They don't hire the same sort of people all the time. They've got someone in every selection panel who challenges the people doing the hiring to make sure they're not hiring in their own image or they're not hiring for yesterday, they're hiring for tomorrow. You know, those sort of management disciplines in the companies that change quickly and can change, I think, are really evident in hindsight or when you look under the hood. Um, but it's it's sometimes those things sometimes aren't valued that much when things are going okay. You know, the management's okay, uh, the teams look okay, they've been successful in other places. But I think if you haven't got that culture of challenge or bring fresh ideas in regularly, then it's um, it's easy to get complacent mm. and then get left behind. Yeah, so you might have short-term gains, but the long-term picture might be less rosy. So we talked last week about, you know, there are mega themes that are changing the way businesses operate. So decarbonisation is an obvious one. So it's digitisation, AI, which I think a lot of us are still trying to get our heads around. <laughs> so you've got to be in on all of this. Uh, for, for You know, for some people, I mean, I look at AI and I sort of half get it. Uh, for someone running a business, it's hard, particularly if you don't understand it all. How do you get around that issue? Look, I think you've just got to be willing to constantly keep learning. Um, and again, you know, one of the risks in business, particularly the more senior you get, people defer to you or you think you can defer everything to somewhere else in the organisation. And suddenly you find you have got no idea what's going on and that there's a, there's a challenger in your industry that's doing stuff that you don't even understand. So I think it's there's an obligation now that everyone needs to keep learning. Uh, otherwise, again, you get complacent. And complacency in so many businesses is the, is the death knell. Um, and AI, you know, in, in some ways it's been made, um, much has been made of it when it's not really rocket science. It's machine learning. And uh, you know, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, machine learning changed the way manufacturing happened. That's all it was. Uh, you could do stuff with machines that once people had to do manually. Now that's going to happen in uh, areas of lots of white-collar work where if you need to write a letter, you can actually teach a machine to write a good letter. You know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in AI that's, that is the 
white collar equivalent of uh, the changing the changes to blue collar work, particularly repetitive work. So, do you think it's do you think um, it's part of the answer to productivity? Because we have you know we have this issue. We are in this quest, and Australia's not alone in this in trying to get productivity back up again. It's slumped somewhat for some time now. Do you think AI is going to be part of the answer? It may be part of the answer. It, it probably will be part of the answer. But the challenge will be as jobs are replaced by machines and machine capacity, are we retraining people to do the value-add jobs? Because uh, I'm not sure we'll get the productivity lift unless we can reskill um, quite a few chunks of our workforce. And that'll be the same with, uh, with decarbonisation and uh, the shift to greener energy as well, uh, unless we've got a workforce that can, for example, do advanced, ban- can do battery manufacturing, can take lithium from mines in Australia and do something with it here rather than just export it as we've traditionally done with other, uh, with other minerals, that we can uh, transform a clean energy future into um, a clean business future. You know, where's the innovation that's going to come in agri and all the other sectors that are going to be that we're going to need to re where we're going to need to reinvent ourselves so i do think it needs to go hand in hand with retooling our workforce as well and then you've got the productivity kicker of um, high value jobs creating high value and um, areas that have been traditionally lower value jobs or more repetitive jobs that maybe have been seen as high value in the past uh, being done with machine learning. So I think we've got to get the combination working. Otherwise, we run the risk of, of just, um, you know, getting rid of a whole lot of jobs and not having the skills base we need for the next to reinvent ourselves. Countries have to reinvent themselves as well. You can't just say, well, you know, we're going to keep digging up coal and iron ore and that'll keep us rich because it won't. Mm. Uh, we can't, you know, We've got to do it differently. Yeah, it's not not for too much longer can we get away with that, absolutely. So what about, you mentioned companies that are uh, perhaps been resting on their laurels. You know, they've been doing something for a long time. Then along comes a whippersnapper. A new company comes along with a new way of doing things. It's perhaps spotted uh, a gap in the market, which you have missed. Uh, and all of a sudden, rather than being the, the, the company that is leading the market, all of a sudden you are trying now to follow and catch up. How do you stop that happening? Let me give you the example of cru- the cruise business in tourism. Um, so, you know, once it was fashionable, you know, when my parents and others were around, it was the way people travelled. It was seen as a very elegant way to travel, high-end travel. And then it became um, more uh, a sort of fun travel business. You know, it was seen as where you went for parties or short-term holidays. But then suddenly all of that looked a bit seedy. And places like Bali, other destinations popped in. You know, suddenly uh, the Gold Coast, Bali, Fiji, other parts of Asia offered a similar product with a bit more exoticism at a very similar price and cruise just suddenly looked a bit daggy. And we ran the risk. When I first uh, took on Carnival, we were... We were actually a very small part. We'd become a very small part of the travel sector because every other part of travel had just taken off and we'd sat in the same place because there were a group of hardcore cruisers but nobody else wanted to, really wanted to take it on. And so we actually had to completely reinvent the category or we would have just gone out backwards. And by reinvent the category, we had to 
think about what was it that people were buying? What did they find interesting in other places that we weren't giving them? Um, what is it that uh, was damaging the reputation? You know, there was, and and what is it that we could we could offer differently uh, to different parts of the market? So part of our strategy was using multiple brands so that you could tap into different market segments. Part of it was opening up destinations that previously ships hadn't gone to that were exotic destinations that competed more directly with Bali or uh, or Malaysia or, you know, other parts of the world that you could get to. And part of it was just the product offering needed to be more contemporary and less uh, and and feel less like it was a place where um, where you basically just went to get drunk and fall about. So it all of that. So every every element of the business had to be touched, refined, reinvented. Uh, the look and feel of the ships had to be reinvented. The way we mark went to market had to be reinvented. And then, of course, we had to stop or discourage the behaviour that was causing the perception that it was a place where people went to get drunk and fall over. So that um, sounds like a sweeping change. You're talking about changing <laughs> the brand almost in its entirety. So does that mean, I mean, you're not just uh, repainting ships, are you? You must be restaffing. You must be bringing in new expertise. I mean, that seems like a massive change. Obviously, it needed to happen because, as you say, it was getting to be quite seedy, wasn't it? You, you joined at a bad time. We, we all remember yep. the circumstances that you joined into. Uh, so to turn around something like that must still have been a risk, a, a great deal of expense and a, a, a large amount of risk because what happens if you made the wrong call? Well, it was a choice. At those moments, you make choices about do you keep going and hope that, you know, somehow it magically turns itself around or do you invest in turning it around? And so we elected to invest in, in the turnaround. And the investment, it's quite interesting. It always looks like you've got to invest a lot from the outside, but a lot of it was about um, internal culture. There were costs, but there are, you can do clever things as well. You can do brand alignment. You can do partnerships that make where it's good for them and good for you because they're the best partnerships. And, and so to shift the um, customer preference, I guess, away from the idea that it was just about drinking, you bring on, you do a partnership with Luke Mangan and you bring on a, a high-end chef onto a ship that where people are still paying seven, eight hundred dollars a week for a holiday, but they now suddenly can get access to things that they would struggle to get access to if they weren't on holidays. You know, going to Luke's restaurants it's expensive, and but you could we could offer that in a way that made it affordable. The same with wines; you don't you don't necessarily have to come on board and drink cheap and nasty grog. Uh, you, we partner with winemakers from the Hunter Valley. Who were dying to get a, to get access to a bigger market, and you help them understand wine. So you offer you offer stuff that doesn't cost you that much, but completely shifts the way people see the brand and experience the brand. And so we just literally we did it systematically. We went through everything. We went through food. We went through alcohol. We went through the length of cruises. We started doing themed cruises. You know, everyone's watching MasterChef. So we started doing wine and food cruises. We started doing um, cruises that we did chocolate cruises. We did all this stuff that where we brought people on the ships for shorter cruises to do the stuff that people were just dying to understand better because they were watching it on TV all the time but not getting access to 
any greater understanding than the entertainment they were getting. So we started to offer things that weren't accessible that easily any other way. And suddenly you've, you open your market to a whole new group of people. Mm. It's a yeah, it's a unique experience, isn't it, that you're creating there? But you stuck with the name Carnival Cruises, so that's the interesting thing. Because at the time, there was a lot of discussion, wasn't there, about whether this was bad for the brand, whether it was bad for P and O as well, and yeah. uh, you know the the industry as a whole. Uh, and maybe the you know if you cleaned up the image, you also needed to change the the brand as well. Uh, but you didn't, and yet you know the other side, we've got Elon Musk. Buying Twitter, which is not only a brand, it's also, you know, a piece of our lexicon. It's a verb, for goodness sake. <laughs> and he chucked that away, uh, which is a curious thing, isn't it? So the power of the and consistency of the brand, if you are an established company that is competing against new entrants in your, your industry, that's a powerful thing to hang on to, isn't it? If you can show that it can evolve. Yeah, I think, I think you know, P&O is 170 years old. You don't throw away a brand with equity, multi-generational equity for a f- five years of really poor brand performance. Uh, you've got to build on uh, the stuff that you know you've got inside all of that, inside the heads of people who've used it before, who remember it when it was, when they, their grandparents sailed to the UK on it. You know, those things actually are worth something. And particularly in consumer brands, I mean Elon Musk. Uh, who knows why yeah, um, who knows? that happened? When yes, tweeting uh, has become part of the the language really mm. as a as a thing you do. And yeah. I'm not sure you, yeah, you're you ever xing. No, you never do. And so that, that's why. I mean, maybe that is an example of you know why you need this diversity at at your board and management level, so you don't have one man coming up with crazy ideas like that. But anyway, good luck to him. But what, what about? We hope he does well. What about? How do you know though? If a company is transitioning well, if you're looking from the outside, all the good stuff that you, you've talked about in the, in the last 15 minutes, how can somebody in the outside world looking in, an investor, see which companies are actually on track and actually sort of, you know, maybe they've been through difficult times and they are trying to reinvent themselves. What are the indicators you look for to see if they are heading in the right direction or not? Uh, well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the quality of the leadership of businesses is really important. And how diverse they are, not just in their look and feel, although that's important as well, but have they all come from the same industry? You know, there's a lot of industries where everyone in management teams come out of exactly the same sector and have tended to have very similar careers, which uh, probably doesn't all go well for, real, for lots of challenge inside a management team. Um, I think there's also, uh, you know, most companies now report on their uh, surveys from their staff and their customer scores as well. I'm, I'm always surprised how little attention, maybe it's not understood that well, but how little attention is paid to those metrics because they're your lead indicators. If, you're, you know, if your net promoter score is relatively low, then your customers don't like what you do. If, you're, uh, if your employee engagement is low, it's really hard to motivate people to put in discretionary effort, which all companies going through change need. You need people to want to do the hard things that you're going to ask them to do if you're going to transform your business. And so I I often think so much attention is paid to metrics that perhaps are conventional but also largely backward-looking. 
as opposed to the things that are your forward indicators of change, that those metrics, I think, should be given a lot more attention than they probably generally are. Now, we are travelling like uh, there's no tomorrow right now. Australians are everywhere in the world. Uh, Those who aren't elsewhere in the world are sitting in a coffee shop having their cappuccino and their crushed avocado on toast. We are eating out more than ever before. Uh, So are we now, you know, in search of experiences? Is this just a short-term reaction because we've been locked up for so long? Or do you think uh, our quest for experiences has always been very strong in the Australian psyche anyway? But do you think that is more pronounced than it's here to stay? It'll be interesting to see as people are clearly making choices at the moment about where their discretionary spend is going. And you can see uh, retail's been pretty up and down. There are some sectors that aren't doing so well. Uh, and yet travel uh, is doing ex- incredibly well. Mm. But um, is, that just for, is that just a short-term thing because we, you know, we had that pent-up demand, so we're travelling this year and you know, maybe next year we'll be back to how we were before? Well, you can see forward bookings in lots of, of both airline and other forms of travel, and it's pretty strong going forward as well. Uh, and I would think, I think we we have a psyche about uh, being able to travel and getting away, and that probably has been and was reinforced during the lockdowns. The everybody felt that incredible containment, um, and you know wanted to do something about it. Uh, but what we're seeing is people are making more active trade offs now than maybe they were pre COVID, and they're still choosing travel. So travel is something people are doing. It may not be as expensive as they uh, thought earlier in their, you know, that they may have planned a couple of years ago because their mortgage is costing them a bit more money, but they're still planning some sort of trip, some sort of holiday, some sort of experience. And even domestically, you can see the marketing for domestic travel is much more about experiences. Come walking here, come swim with a whale shark here, come watch a whale here. You know, those sorts of experiential things are now, I think, much more on people's radar as opposed to let's just go from A to B, which is why people will trade off other forms of discretionary spend to keep travelling if they can. And it's been great talking to you. Look, now we've uh, now we've spoken to you. I'm going to work my way through the, uh, the NAB board. So if you're on the NAB board, watch out because we're coming after you. Uh, but it's, it's been very insightful. And hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime in the new year. Thanks for coming on. Look forward to it. Thanks, Bill. There we are. Very interesting lady, isn't she? She is allowed to wear that I've been there and done that T-shirt. Because uh, <laughs> she has. Now, we are back next weekend with another weekend edition. And I'm back on Monday with our regular weekday morning call. So hopefully you can join me for that. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. The Weekend Edition 